Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Pepis, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guests today are poets Michelle Peñalosa and Tina Moselle Brazil. They are alumni of the UO's creative writing program. Michelle Peñalosa's collection, Former Possessions of the Spanish Empire, published in 2019, won the 2018 Hillary Gravendike National Poetry Prize. She is also the author of two chapbooks, Landscape Heartbreak and Last Night I Dreamt of Volcanoes, both published in 2015. Tina Moselle Brazil's collection, Known by Salt, published in 2019, won the 2017 Philip Levine Prize for Poetry. Her chapbook, Rooted by Thirst, was published in 2016. She directs the Ada Long Creative Writing Workshop at the University of Alabama at uh, Birmingham. Penalosa and Brazil will give virtual readings of their work on January 20th, 2021, as guests of the UO Creative Writing Program. I should also say that Michelle is unable to join us uh, by video because of challenges to her internet, and uh, we may hear animals in the background. So thank you both. <laughs> thank you both for coming on the show. It's a real pleasure to speak with you. Thanks so much for having us. Sorry that I, um, you know, I have a face, but I'm just a voice today. So um, this question, I'll, I'll ask a couple of questions to both of you. Um, let's start with Tina. Uh, tell us about your trajectory, your journey to becoming a poet. So um, I was I was interested in creative writing, and um, but I, I guess I. What really spurred me on was a friend of mine who was an artist took a poetry writing class at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. And I was like insanely jealous um, that she was taking a, a creative writing class and because she was supposed to be the artist and I wanted to be the writer. And um, so um, after that, I joined her and her classmates in a writing class, uh, like a writing group where we would meet in each other's houses. And um, from there, I earned my MA in creative writing at the University of Alabama and um, then taught at UAB for a while and wanted more instruction and came to UO. So Michelle, the same question uh, to you. Tell us about your journey to being a poet. Yeah, I, I think it took me a while to call myself that. I, I've always been a lifelong reader and you know a, a journal writer, but it wasn't until I went to college and I took classes in which I studied and read uh, Asian American poets that I had models of, um, you know, that I I could do it too. And so um, that was sort of my first entrance uh, toward becoming a poet was seeing folks who looked like me that also had books and collections that people studied and, and read in the world. And from there, that's when I took my first creative writing classes in college. And um, and even then, I think it was like, oh, I'm a person taking classes, but I didn't quite call myself a poet, probably until I got into the U of O writing program. And I was like, okay, I guess it's official now. I can, I can call myself a poet. Other people have co-signed this. So that, that brings me to my next question for both of you. Can you both share um, a memory or a piece of advice or a lesson that you learned while you were both at the uh, U of O's MFA program in creative writing? 
Tina, you want to go first? <laughs> um, a memory or a piece of advice? Um, you know, something that you learned that that uh, remains important to you as a poet. Oh, um, I think it was a converse. I'll, I'll say there's so many things, but um, a conversation that I had with Garrett over the copy machine was uh, really important to me. Um, I can't. I don't remember word for word for what he said, but he, you know, he's he's like a super intelligent, you know, totally brilliant man um, and knows so much. Um, but he said something to the effect about um, being a poet is not all intellect, that a lot of it is emotion and being able to connect with people in that way. And um, that just meant so much to me um, because I, I felt um, that he was giving me um, some advice and encouragement um, to pursue, you know, my writing in ways that, you know, maybe like what I was learning a lot in his classes might have been a, a different trajectory, but he's like, we need to encompass the whole person. Um, so I really value somebody with that, that level of um, intelligence and, and, you know, just this kind, kind of encyclopedia knowledge to um, his his respect and admiration and uh, like his belief that you know the emotional part and making that con emotional connection is just so um, is also so essential to the art form that we work in. Michelle, do you also have a Garrett Hongo memory or another memory? Oh, I have so many Garrett Garrett stories. <laughs> I feel like, but I think that. Um, it's, it's really hard to pick one thing because it's such an intense program. And um, I felt like I learned a lifetime's worth of lessons in the short time I was there. But I would say um, both Garrett and Jerry taught me how to read, like both read poems for what's already there. You know, we're in workshop a lot. We have three a, a year when we're in the program. and um, you know, one of the things Garrett always talks about is the the latent meaning within the work that's already there. And he does this thing where um, in workshop, it's sort of like um, like jazz, where he finds the notes in between. And he's like, look, you already wrote it. Look at it, look what you did. And um, I think that that way of trying to read what um, what's already there instead of um, trying to, to sort of do quick fixes is a thing that um, one small thing, I mean, one example. And um, and I feel like both Garrett and Jerry really taught me a lot about reading the world, if that makes sense. Not And then similar to what Tina was saying, it's not just about the craft of what's on the page, but also, you know, how are you observing the world? What are you reading? Who are you in conversation with? um yeah so thanks for so that. many things thanks for that and and uh, jerry just for those who don't know is is jerry doran another one of the poets in the u of o's uh, program um michelle my my next question is for you let's start with your volumes title former possessions of the spanish empire tell us how you understand uh -huh. I, t tell us how you understand that title 
and its relationship to the volume overall? Well, um, I, it, um, when I wrote that poem, it was one of the later ones that I wrote for the collection. And it really was kind of one of the final puzzle pieces that made it come together for me. It kind of refracted everything through that lens. Um, so, you know, I'm Filipino American and uh, the title actually comes from a having a discussion with another poet friend who um, who also is, uh, you know, part of the legacy of uh, Spanish colonialism, but in the Dominican Republic. And, um, you know, we were joking about how like, oh, we should write, we both have Z's in our last names. We should both write um, a poem, Former Possessions of the Spanish Empire. And, you know, I don't know about um, you, Tina, but like when that happens, you're like, oh, I better write it first. And so, so I did, and then it became the poem that uh, is sort of um, emblematic of of the the collection as a whole. Um, thinking about possession, you know, from various angles, not just um, you know, like the word itself, possession, you know, something to own and um, and have possessed, but also how um, the self can be possessed. Um, all these different refractions of that um, particular word, um, I think, reverberate throughout the collection. Could I ask you to read us a poem? Sure. I actually was planning to read um, that particular poem, so it's, it's great that you asked that question. Uh, so I'll just begin. Former Possessions of the Spanish Empire. People name us with the separation of their teeth, the long Z of our naming. It used to be we were named for our proximity. Kato Tabing Dagat, the parentage of the sea. The forest lineage, Kato Vinubatan. Or we were named for our parents, Anak Nilina, Bunso Niboyet. The song of our names led to the discovery of garlic growing from our palms, the scapes forming a second green hand. But it was in the name of good King Philip that songs changed to names and the naming of names became law. A governor general made a name for himself with the Catalogo de Apellidos, a dissemination of empire, a naming of parts to trace and tax everyone. Whole provinces renamed with efficient alphabetical phenomena. Padilla, Pacheco, Palma, Paz, Perez, Portillo, Puente, Peñalosa. Still, there were names we kept to ourselves, a shorthand between us. Windows lined with votives, jars of holy water, the papayas lush coral and beaded seeds shining. Can legacy exist in shorthand? Papal, papa, papel, papaya, paalam, permission, please. What are the root words for what we simply know? How do children born of empire once removed possess the history of their naming? As I was reading the volume, and I think this poem speaks to it, I, I was struck by the idea of diaspora as a kind of poetic practice. 
And as you read hmm. the poem, and you you have a uh, this you do throughout the volume, of combining words in English, Tagalog, and in Spanish, untranslated. Will you say a little bit about that strategy and the importance of it for you? Yeah, I mean, I think it's reflective of where I'm writing from and as. Um, and, you know, when I first uh, started writing poems, I, I, I think I was um, hesitant to, to do that code switching you're referring to. And then once I finally started doing it, I always um, did so much work for ostensibly, you know, white readers because I would um, you know, do a lot of translating. I would always mark it with italics. I would do footnotes. I would do all of these calisthenics and gymnastics to like explain. And um, I, I'm happy to say I don't do that anymore. And um, the way that it stands on its own is the way that I stand on my own. And that, um, you know, those uh, those interstitial spaces that I that are where I exist um, are are where uh, my poetry also comes from. So I guess in terms of strategy, it's it's um, trying to uh, encapsulate, or maybe not even that, just trying to express like where I'm, where I am, where I'm coming from, or where yeah, not even coming from, where I am. <laughs> Thanks for that. Um, Tina, I'm going to switch to you now. So um, let me ask you a similar question that I started with Michelle. Can you say a little bit about how you understand your volume's title, Known by Salt, and its relationship to the volume as a whole? A title of a poem. And, um, and coming up with that poem, I was, I was, I was thinking of this um, like religious song that like the chorus is um, known by love. We, you know, we will be known by love. And um, I was thinking like that my, like where I come from, I come from a working class background, that we're known by salt or known by our work. Um, particularly like this kind of situation where you're, you're sitting at a table and um, for me growing up, you immediately salted your food. You didn't taste it first. And uh, <laughs> and my mom claimed that that was because like everybody in our family needed a lot of salt. Uh, most of um, like my dad, his brothers, my grandfather were all construction workers and they would sweat a lot. So they they needed more salt than most people. Um, so yeah, it's it comes from that. And I think also when you think about work and working class people, um, Salt, I think, also notes a little bit about uh, commodification and money, considering and um, when the Roman Empire people were paid in salt. Um, but now it's something that's like one of the cheapest things you can pick up at the grocery store. So um, yeah, so to me, like, and, and talking about where I come from and the people that um, I have a lot of respect for, but also like in my own life and building a house and being here, I wanted to connect to those um, issues of work and um, issues of like sweat. So would you share a poem with us as well? Sure. So um, I guess to, one thing to know about this poem is the, the house that I'm in right now is a house that my husband and I um, 
built ourselves. And we're still building, there's lots of things to be done. And uh, right now we don't have running water. So we do use a lot of little tiny house um, or hacks to um, take care of washing hands and dishes and et cetera. Um, coming from the South and living in a house without running water and growing up in a trailer park has a lot of stereotypes that are not all um, positive <laughs> or, or rarely are positive. So this poem speaks to those things. Trash. My neighbor burns his beside his trailer. A garbage truck picks up ours. But we have no plumbing. I can't say who is poor, but his stinks. A singed outlet smell that makes me worry that some base electrical fire hides in our walls. It brings back my grandparents' pile burning beside the scrawny tomatoes mom forbid me to eat. The sprawling squash dad backed over because it grew so close to the rutted drive. And the roses mama bedded and moated with long stretches of lawn. One vine grew over the bay window of her double wide as if netting a big catch of pretty. Lipstick on a pig is what my friend said once, pointing out red geraniums hanging from a trailer's porch. A hedge fund banker, she had no idea where I come from. That stunk too. I don't know if it was her or me, the trailer park chip on my shoulder, the one my teacher said I should knock off still smolders. I do know what people say, that others treasure what you throw out. But I'm afraid I'm like my neighbor, unwilling to give another man mine. Some treasures are just for me to burn. So um, despite what the way that poem ends, I'm interested in the idea that one of the, the things that your poetry does, it seems to me, is to share your treasures as a, 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 a woman growing up in a working class Southern background. I mean, and part of the work of the volume seems to me to be to give voice to that place and that class and that, and that experience. Isn't that right? Yes. Um, and I do feel like that um, most of what I'm writing about is like the kind of the beauty and abundance that I find in this life. Um, I hope, and you know, I guess it's part of my my goal is in talking about that beauty and that abundance, is to um, to persuade people to to rethink what they may have originally um, assumed, like that this life would be like. Yes, I think I think it's uh, fair to say with both of the volumes there is this educational experience that the reader goes through. That is to say, both of these volumes seem to me to be really wanting to, to teach us things that we didn't know before we came to the volumes. Very interesting, very powerful. Michelle, let me come back to you and, and uh, talk to you a little bit about your, the, the role of family history in your volume. It's clear from the poem that Tina just read and what she says that the family history and heritage is very important in her work. And many of the poems in your volume deal with members of your family. Some of them even speak from the perspective of your family members and in particular your Filipino heritage and identity. Why is that important for you to put into this verse? Why is that a crucial part of, of your vision? Um, 
I think that uh, it's sort of challenging for me to answer that because it wouldn't ever occur to me not to write about that, I guess. I think it's, it's just inherently important because my family is inherently important. I also think that, um, you know, within my family's history, I think there is a lot of proving um, the, the sort of right to be where they are in, at various points in our, our history. And so um, I think part of it for me is an homage. And part of it also is, you know, um, in my family, I'm like kind of the, I wouldn't say black sheep, maybe like gray sheep. I, you know, I'm the weird artist who didn't become a, a doctor or nurse. And, um, you know, my family is supportive of, of me because they love me, but they don't really, I mean, I think a bunch of them have my book, but I would be able to count on my hand maybe how many of them have actually read it, <laughs> which is not to say not a dig at my family, but more that, um, you know, I think that there's a lot that they don't talk about and there's a lot that they, that's not polite to, to bring up. And I think that my work is trying to sort of, um, uncover why that is for myself and also sort of process what that means for um, how I have been possible and how I have arrived at my life because of the things that my family has um, done and endured and experienced. And so part of it is um, homage and part of it is um, reimagining and reclaiming and um, and also their characters, they're also fun to write about too. My mom, especially. Um, so, yeah. yeah. I mean, the po the poems about your family members they really do communicate what characters they are. Um, I, I love the one where your father takes you to the uh, automobile plant. That's a that's a lovely poem, also. Um, Thank you. Thanks, Tina. My this next question is for you. You've been characterized as an eco poet. And you know, I mean, I know that you've 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 you're you actually served as the eco poet. And would you say something about your your sense of your relationship to that idea of being an eco poet, and also more generally, the importance of of nature and landscape in your in your verse? Um, yeah, I was I was very honored to be named the eco poet um, for the Magic City Poetry Festival um, in Birmingham. Um, I. I, you know, I think in part um, people saw that I, I did respond a lot to the natural world when I'm, I'm writing and I, I do want to um, write as much about it as I can. I find a lot of inspiration in um, the things I see and, and like living, I live at the end of a dirt road. <laughs> so um, um, I, I, I spend a lot of time um, outside and, and in, the, in the world. Um, what has been nice about being named as an eco-poet and working with the Cahaba River Society is that it's um, given me many more opportunities not only to appreciate that, but to make some um, lots of bridges between um, poetry and um, environmental concerns. Um, I read for the Alabama Water Alliance ra uh, Water Rally this year. Um, I've done some creative writing um, hikes, like where we would hike and write poems along on waterways. 
Um, and I've done some environmental um, like curriculum for the um, outreach that the Copper River Society does. And so um, to me, this has been, you know, it's kind of opened a door for me, which um, I've really, I've, I'm, I'm really enjoying it and has really encouraged me to pursue more um, because I like the, um, I like the purpose of connecting art with something that is, is really important for all of us. Um, Great, thanks. Thank you. Um, Michelle, that brings me to my next question, which is about your, your previous chapbook, The Landscape Heartbreak Project, which resonates in lovely ways with what Tina was just saying. Would you tell us a little bit about that, Michelle? Yeah. Um, so basically, I had this project, this idea that um, came to fruition where people took me on walks to places that they'd had their hearts broken, and it all took place in Seattle. And I started this project, you know, right when I had um, moved, maybe a couple months when I'd moved to Seattle. And it was a really, um, you know, very unique way to get to know the city. And um, yeah, uh, the poems, I recorded all of the walks um, that people went on with me. And, you know, some of them, like the longest one was maybe almost 20 miles. And then the shortest one was maybe like a block that we just kept circling. Um, and people just shared with me all kinds of different uh, stories. And, you know, people hear heartbreak, they um, often primarily think of um, intimate partner, you know, like relationship um, heartbreak, but so many people shared all different kinds of, of stories. So, you know, the heartbreak of losing a child, the heartbreak of racism, the heartbreak of um, how hard it is to be an adult. Uh, and so it was just a really, really wonderful project for, for me, selfishly, like I um, got to know so many interesting people. I have a lot of good friends actually from that project and also a book. So we're, we're coming to the end of our time and I have a couple of questions for the both of you to wrap up. Uh, speaking of heartbreak, you know, I'm, I'm a, I direct the Oregon Humanities Center and I'm an English professor and people often say to me, you know, why does, why does the humanities matter? And whenever I'm speaking with poets, I'm interested in that question, but I'm particularly interested because we live in such heartbreaking times, such difficult, challenging times. And I'm, I'm interested in what each of you, how each of you would answer the question, why is poetry important now? Uh, <laughs> Is that too hard of a question? I, no, no, it's just the times are really challenging right now. And um, that is a question, not, not to say that I'm important, but um, you know, there's a lot that's happening that's really hurtful right now. And I think um, it matters because we need to put language to, to exactly why that hurts and what we're going to do about it. And I think that poetry is often a space where that distillation and refraction can happen. Um, and, you know, it, it's hard not to be cynical in these times. So I think that's why that that's a challenging question um, for me in, in general, but I absolutely think it does. It's just, 
you know, it's rough right now. I'm, I, it's hard to, um, to be in that space because I think that poetry often um, is a place where um, things are broken open. And I feel like, you know, for the past year, we've been broken open by the things that have been happening. So that overlap um, can be really fruitful, but also is painful too. Tina? Yeah, um, well, I think the humanities in general helps us to connect with other people's perspectives and where they're coming from. I often think of um, like fiction as kind of a, a like social way of, of reading things where we're able to kind of step into somebody else's shoes and see how other people interact with the world. Um, but poetry, I think, because it's, it's um, so intimate and um, I think it helps people have conversations with themselves about how they're reacting to the world. Um, and I think there are so many poets like, uh, just like the poet Lucille Clifton where she questions herself um, and that example can be so, um, it's so powerful and so necessary now, I think more than ever. Um, you know, I, I'm thinking of the poem where she's like how, um, where she's writing about a, that she's concerned that there there was a killing and she's, you know, hope, hoping whether the kid is a black kid or a white kid. And then she, she questions herself, you know, like aren't they all our children? And um, when somebody, <clears throat> of that magnitude who, who has dealt with so much questions herself, like her own, like, where am I coming from? And aren't, shouldn't I extend this uh, humanity to everyone? Um, I think it's a way of, of having all of us do the same. It's a, it's a model like of like, not just like the way fiction kind of gives us a model or a way of thinking of how we do things in the social world, but a model of what our internal life might be. Thank you for those really interesting and wise words. And I want to thank you both for taking the time today to speak with us. It's been a true pleasure. I would highly recommend to our uh, viewers your volumes and your writing. And uh, let me remind you that um, the, both uh, uh, Tina and Michelle will give a virtual reading of their work on January 20th, 2021 as guests of the UO Creative Writing Program. Thank you both for being with us today. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. You're very welcome. I've been speaking with the poets Michelle Penalosa and Tina Moselle Brazil, alumni of the UO's Creative Writing Program. And again, as I said, they will give virtual readings of their work on January 20th, 2021, as guests of the UO's Creative Writing Program. Thanks so much for watching.